It's the Victorian Variety Show. What were you doing with the Hittorf II when you made the discovery of the X-rays? I was looking for invisible rays. What made you use a barium platino cyanide screen? In Germany, we use it to reveal the invisible rays of the spectrum, and I thought it a suitable substance to use to detect any invisible rays a tube might give off. He then detailed how he made the discovery. He said he had covered up the Hittorf tube with black paper so as to exclude all light, and had the screen, which was simply a piece of cardboard with some crystals of barium platino cyanide deposited on it, lying on a table three or four meters from where the covered tube was situated, ready to be used. He excited the tube to ascertain if all light was excluded. This was so, but to his intense surprise, he found the distant screen shining brightly. I asked him, what did you think? He said very simply, I did not think. I investigated. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, in which I take an in-depth look at aspects of life during the Victorian era that often don't get as much attention as perhaps they should in an academic setting or in media representations of that time period. Because sometimes, they're still very much a part of our lives today, even though we might not immediately make the connection, even if we do a bi-weekly podcast on aspects of life during the Victorian era, like I do. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read is taken from Sir James Mackenzie Davidson's 1896 interview with German engineer and physicist Wilhelm Konrad Röntgen, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, which was included in one of the appendices to X-rays, an introduction to the study of Röntgen rays, published in 1914 by George William Clarkson K. I wasn't planning to talk about X-rays in this episode. I'd done research on a completely different topic, which I really want to talk about and intend to cover in my next episode, or at least in the very near future, but I've been having pain and stiffness in my back for a while, and about a week and a half ago, it got so bad, I finally saw a doctor for it, and she sent me for x-rays. I've had a number of x-rays over the years, mostly at the dentist, and they've been something I've never thought too much about. I mean, they're just a usual part of the dentist's visit. And even a few hours after I had the x-rays for my back last week, I went right back to the topic I was originally thinking of covering. But then it hit me. Didn't x-rays kind of become a thing during the Victorian era? I don't see history as an abstract thing separate from our modern lifestyle, but rather as something that, to some extent, still lives and breathes and occasionally interacts with us. And as a result, I saw the experience of getting x-rays from my back as something of an opportunity for me 
and maybe you the listener, to learn more about the first x-rays that appeared toward the end of the 19th century and the ensuing craze over them. In an interesting twist, which I didn't even notice when I originally worked on the script for this episode, but when you think about it, back, spine, twist, not intended at the time, but pun intended, I had to unexpectedly take my dog to the vet the day after I had my x-rays and decided to dedicate this episode to x-rays, and my dog ended up having x-rays of her own while she was there. I've heard of dogs and their humans coming to resemble each other after a while, but I was like, sheesh, when that happened. But as you can see, x-rays have been very much on the brain lately. I'm not going to go too much into the technology around x-rays in this episode, but I do think it's important to briefly define x-rays before discussing anything else. Wikipedia defines quote-unquote x-ray radiation, which is, less commonly, also referred to as quote-unquote X radiation, or, after the subject of the interview that I read an excerpt from a few minutes ago, quote-unquote Rotgen radiation, as, quote, a penetrating form of high-energy electromagnetic radiation, end quote. They're used for things like checking whether bones are broken, detecting some forms of diseases, and identifying some types of metal. According to Wikipedia, they're thought to have been quote-unquote unknowingly produced as far back as 1785, when, in a paper he presented to the Royal Society of London, British physicist and statistician William Morgan described the quote-unquote invisible light produced by an electrical current passing through a partially evacuated glass tube. However, in the late 19th century, the rays were largely considered an unidentified form of radiation generated by experimental discharge tubes, such as the Crookes tube, which was developed in the early to mid-1870s and consisted of a glass tube that produced cathode rays or electron beams when high voltage was applied between the electrodes at either end of the tube. And Röntgen's quote-unquote discovery of the rays in 1895 didn't clear up their mysterious nature. In fact, an article on the Click Americana site called How X-Rays Were Discovered, Victorian Medical Tech We Still Use Every Day, explains that Röntgen referred to his discovery as quote-unquote X-Rays because he really didn't know what they were. In November of that year, while experimenting with the light generated by a Crookes tube covered with black paper in his Würzburg laboratory, which he'd completely sealed off against light, he realized that a second light was coming from another item in the room, a plate coated in barium platino cyanide, which produces fluorescence in certain conditions. Röntgen concluded that some type of rays outside of the visual spectrum passed through the opaque paper that covered the tube. In the existential horror created by the first X-ray images, Kelsey Kennedy explains that Röntgen became so engrossed in his work in the weeks that followed that he often missed dinner, prompting his supportive wife, Anna, to bring him dinner. One night, shortly before Christmas, Röntgen asked Anna to assist him in the lab by holding her left hand on a photographic plate while he shone the rays at it. The resulting images, which showed the ghostly outline of every bone in her hand, 
shocked Anna to the point that she exclaimed, quote, I have seen my death, end quote, and refused to ever visit her husband's lab again, according to numerous reports. As Kennedy describes it, it seems possible that Anna's reaction may have been embellished somewhat for effect as it was passed down over the years, but I still think it's an entertaining story to think about. After taking the radiograph, titled Hand mit Ringen, which would go on to help Röntgen win the first Nobel Prize in physics in 1901, Kennedy tells us Röntgen sent copies of it with a draft of a paper he wrote describing his discovery to several prominent physicists, one of whom was Arthur Schuster at the University of Manchester, who started to recreate Röntgen's experiments, making a number of radiographs of subjects as varied as a frog, his six-year-old son's foot, and a bullet lodged in someone's brain, the latter of which, according to Kennedy, helped Schuster realize that x-rays could be incredibly valuable for medical purposes. And for that reason, Röntgen ultimately decided not to patent his discovery, so that the technology could be widely accessible not only to the medical community, but also to the general public. And, as I've mentioned in a number of my previous episodes, the general public was enthralled by the abundance of scientific and technological innovation that went on in the mid to late 19th century. Surgical procedures were open to the public, and crowds were often standing room only, if you will. Scientific lectures and demonstrations were included in holiday presentations, and non-scientists in the UK and the US joined nature groups and spent their weekends hunting for ferns, to give you just a few examples. So, as you might imagine, it would probably be an understatement to say that the general public was initially enthusiastic about the prospect of having access to this unique new technology. In Looking Radiant, Science, Photography, and the X-Ray Craze of 1896, Sylvia Pambukian suggests that X-rays were particularly captivating because they allowed viewers to see, quote, the deep structures of body with the all-knowing gaze of the scientist, or with the magical view of the medium, end quote. As a result, the press often ran stories on the new technology, and lectures and demonstrations were generally well attended. Even though exhibitors usually took x-rays of their own hands, usually to make sure the equipment was working and make necessary adjustments, they also brought up volunteers to have their hands and purses x-rayed. However, the items Röntgen used to create his earth-shattering image were relatively easy to obtain, as well as the fluoroscope, a machine patented by Thomas Edison in 1896 that allowed an object's interior to be viewed in real time when it was placed between a screen and an x-ray coil. So, leaving the house wasn't really necessary for amateur x-ray enthusiasts. Quote-unquote visual gadgetry, described by a scholar cited by Pambukian named Jonathan Crary as, quote, points of intersection where philosophical, scientific, and aesthetic discourse overlap with mechanical techniques, institutional requirements, and socioeconomic forces, end quote was found in many fashionable parlors since the 1820s. And even though that description might sound a bit convoluted to you, 
included items you might be familiar with, like kaleidoscopes and stereoscopes. And since, as Pambukian suggests, the ghost-like images produced by many X-rays tied in kind of nicely with the Victorians' interest in spirituality, which I've covered in several older episodes of this show, and so-called spirit photography, which, kind of believe it or not, I haven't done an episode on yet, but really should at some point, it's not a stretch for me to imagine a late Victorian party host whipping out some x-ray equipment after their guests had had a few drinks, or maybe got tired of sitting around one of the seance tables you may have seen in photos of Victorian parlors. Both the medical community and the general public recognize the x-ray's potential to diagnose and heal, so stories about them appeared in both specialized and popular medical publications. Even though a number of these stories focused on x-rays potential for beauty or quote-unquote cosmetic purposes, such as depilatory treatments in which unwanted hair is temporarily removed, and as Pambukian notes, the British Journal of Photography printed numerous articles on subjects such as x-rays being applied to mummies, something which still goes on today because x-rays appear to be the most non-invasive way of studying things like mummies' ages, how they died, and what they were wrapped in. Images in these publications often were combined with descriptions that were intended to aid physicians. I'm not sure if these were inspired by Röntgen's image, but radiographic images of skeletal hands seem to have been especially popular, and Pambukian suggests that x-rays were bringing about a change in medical photography. She explains that, toward the end of the Victorian era, quote, the body is depersonalized and fragmented, only the body part of interest is photographed, and the body is displayed anonymously. As Daniel Fox and Christopher Lawrence note, medical photographs of the 1850s and 1860s depicted appropriately dressed patients in domestic settings, but by the 1890s, conventions had changed and sitters were anonymous, often with blacked-out eyes, naked, in plain backgrounds and fragments, with only the diseased area visible, end quote. In addition, Pambukian suggests that as x-rays came to be seen more and more as diagnostic tools, doctors began to value the images they were seeing on a screen over patients' testimony. So, I think you can see how the prospect of easily accessible x-ray technology excited so many medical practitioners and laymen in the early days, but also see some possible drawbacks. And, as it turns out, x-ray technology had some critics practically from the beginning. Since this was still the Victorian era, a time when modesty was encouraged and proper women wore skirts down to their ankles and all that, some worried about the x-ray's potential to show the naughty bits beneath a person's clothes. Others seem not to have been concerned so much about violations of modesty or of privacy since the skeletal images captured by x-rays, often displaying only parts of the body, as I just mentioned in the excerpt, don't bear much resemblance to particular people. But because, as Pambukian points out, the skeletons symbolize the more sensational aspects of modern life for many, around the turn of the century, x-rays, which gave people close-ups of skeletal body parts, may have exacerbated a, 
quote, hyper-consciousness of physical vulnerability, end quote. In addition to the more abstract concerns raised by x-rays, concern grew about physical harms that they could cause. In the beginning, there was very little, if any, regulation regarding the amount of radiation that was being emitted. So Burns, often referred to as quote-unquote x-ray dermatitis, blisters, and hair loss were frequently reported fairly early on. Kennedy notes that a woman with a broken hip who was x-rayed by her husband over a 10-hour exposure suffered burns, and Clarence Daly, an x-ray technician who worked for Thomas Edison, had both arms amputated after being exposed to high levels of radiation and eventually died of cancer at age 39. Pambukian refers to Daly as the first quote-unquote x-ray martyr, a term that was used to describe scientists who died studying x-rays. And, as Livia Gershon explains in The X-Ray Craze of 1896, by 1910, a number of photographers and radiologists who'd helped to spread the word about x-ray technology had developed cancer, and some did indeed die. So Daly might have been the first recorded martyr, but he was most likely not the last. However, due to the novel nature of the technology, some attributed the potential dangers of x-rays to other causes. For example, a Paul Mall Gazette reviewer named David Walsh once likened x-ray burns to industrial-type burns and sunburn, or that dermatitis resulted from a lack of experience in using the technology rather than from the rays or poor ventilation in x-ray rooms. Pambukian suggests that, in part, Victorian-era scientists didn't quite understand how different x-rays were from other visual phenomena, but also, many seemed to believe that the injuries caused by x-rays only emphasized the need to press on with more research, so that the pioneering sacrifices of the aforementioned martyrs wouldn't be in vain. As a result, even though the potential dangers of x-rays were starting to become known, and thankfully, changes were later made, for example, scientists found new ways to measure the amount of radiation emitted by x-rays, and Gershon mentions that by World War I, 1914 and 1918, around that time, many doctors wore lead aprons and gloves when using x-rays. X-rays seem to have faded in popularity among the general public at the beginning of the 20th century, in part because they were a fad, and with fads, the novelty eventually wears off. And... I don't know if overexposure is the right word, but this has probably happened to you. Like, for example, you've heard a popular song everywhere you go, and even if you like it at first, after a while, the people around you are singing it, and you hear it when you walk in the stores and that kind of thing, and you just get sick of it. So it seems conceivable that something similar may have happened with x-rays. A writer for the Quarterly Review cited by Gershon noted that in 1896, X-ray demonstrations, quote, are repeated in every lecture room. They are caricatured in comic prints. Hits are manufactured out of them at the theaters. Nay, they are personally interesting everyone afflicted with a gouty finger, end quote. That's all I have to say for now. But I would love to know what you think about X-rays or anything else I've discussed on this show. 
or maybe what you might like to hear me talk about in a future episode. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1 if you don't already. And if you'd like to support the show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 or leave a donation on my Linktree at linktree slash the Victorian Variety Show or if you're listening on the Good Pods app. I'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. And finally, I would like to say thank you to my listener, Lucy Winborn, who emailed me recently and gave me some wonderful feedback on my episode of Victorian-era fainting culture from earlier this year. I am always curious about which episodes and topics resonate with my listeners most. And even though I love interacting on social media, possibly because I use social media to keep in touch with so many people these days, more so than email, it always feels special when someone takes the time to send me an email. So again, Lucy, thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening to this episode and for all of your support of this show. I hope you enjoyed my look at the Victorian-era X-ray craze. Admittedly, the past two weeks have been more hectic for me than usual, and I'm even putting this episode out a day later than I normally do. And even though I had less time to put this episode together than I usually do, it's been kind of therapeutic for me, weirdly enough, because it reminded me of the fascination that I felt every time I went to the dentist and got to see the x-rays that they took, even though, like I said, I usually don't think about them much, so usually I would forget about them after I took them, which is another story. And I still haven't gotten my own x-rays from last week, even though I got the results, and I got my dog's x-rays. I think I need to request a CD copy to get my own x-rays, at least to take a look at them. But it also reminded me of the hesitation that I've had about having too much radiation over the years, which is why I've tried to limit the number of x-rays that I've had. But the next time I have x-rays, I'll probably have the urge to ask the tech what they think of the story of Frau Röntgen's hand knowing me. But on that note, I'm going to leave you with the remainder of the interview or appendix that I read from at the top of this show, in which Sir James Mackenzie Davidson recounts his meeting with Röntgen. And if you'd like to check out Kay's X-Rays, an introduction to the study of Röntgen rays, I'm including a link to it in the show notes, along with all of the other sources that I used in putting this episode together. Incidentally, he told me how he had taken a photograph through a pine door, which separated two of his laboratories. On developing the negative, he found a white band across it, which, he ascertained, corresponded to the beading on one of the door panels. He stripped the beading off and found the band of shadow was due not to the increased thickness of wood, but to the plumum, white lead really, 
the door maker had employed in attaching the strip of wood. He seemed amused at my remonstrating with him about keeping the screen lying about in his laboratory. I told him it was a historical screen and should be preserved in a glass case. I hope he has carried out this suggestion, for the sudden shining of that screen undoubtedly led to one of the greatest discoveries in modern times.